This morning, we're going to kind of look at a story. We're going to kind of keep following along with our um, sermon series we've been doing the last few weeks, and we're going to, which is called Close Encounters of the Jesus Kind, where we've been looking at people who've had encounters with Jesus and how it's changed and affected their life. And this morning, I'm excited because we're going to look at a story that probably a lot of us have heard, but a lot of us kind of maybe forget about, not really pay much attention to. But as I began studying for it, I found that this really cool thing about this story and it's this, is that in this story, Jesus has this moment where he marvels at someone else. Think about that for a minute. Okay? This moment where Jesus marvels at somebody else. And so it got me thinking, and I put this out on social media this week, and some of you helped me out. Some of you still don't know what social media is, and that's fine. You didn't get the memo. No worries. Okay? But I put this uh, this question out on social media and I said, who did you marvel at growing up? Who were you in awe of growing up? And I had several people kind of help me out and contribute to my little survey. And I want to share some of those answers with you this morning. The number one answer that I had across the board more than anything was people said their fathers and their grandfathers, which that's exciting, right? Amen. That that's, that's, that's the type of answer we want. Because that's, that's families who've had fathers and grandfathers who've left a legacy of teaching their children how to live and how to have a work ethic. And, and they, so many folks said I was just in awe of what his talents were, what they were able to do. That was great. I had some people who threw out the names of some coaches that they had had growing up, that coaches had played this integral part of their life, and they were in awe of the way their coaches taught them and, and loved them and nurtured them throughout that time. But then I had some people who threw out some famous, more popular names, okay, that I wanted to share with you this morning and kind of, kind of get you thinking about this, right? So here's, here's a couple, and some of these are going to be ones that are going to be weird to you maybe. You're like, you may not know everybody, but some of them you're going to be like, oh, sweet, I got that, right? This first one's kind of a little bit different. One of my students, I said, tell me who you marveled at growing up, and I got this guy. You guys know who this is? That's Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. I have not had a chance to ask Ryan Scott what it was about Steve that he marveled at. Maybe the fact that he would put himself in weird, deadly encounters with animals that most of us would run from, or what, right? But I got that, that this guy was a guy that was marveled at growing up. Um, I got this guy that probably none of you are going to know, okay? We got one, yeah, because Wade Wade knows, because Wade sent this in. Wade, who is this? Casey Neistat. Everybody know Casey Neistat? Okay, nobody, right? Everybody know YouTube? A couple of you know YouTube? This guy has kind of made his name by the videos, things that he posts on YouTube. He does some crazy, amazing things with what he films and what he does with just basic cameras, okay? So this was a guy that was marveled at, right? Um, I got this guy. That always kind of helps me out. He's super huge in our youth department, Mr. Mike Allen. And Mike Allen sent me this group of people, and when he sent it to me, I had no clue who they were. Okay? Anybody know these guys? They played basketball down the road. Yeah, Vanderbilt. Bob knows, right? This is a Vanderbilt team of 64-65. And it is full of names of guys I don't know because I'm a Tennessee fan. But I love Mike, so I put it up here. 
So Mike marveled at this Vanderbilt team. And I, I actually began to Google and research a little bit. And this was, it's kind of a cool team. They did some amazing, great things, some great players on this team. But that was a group that, Mar- that Mike marveled at, right? I had somebody that kind of uh, sent me a message that said, hey, you know what? When I was growing up, my grandparents told me that we didn't marvel at superheroes, that those weren't real heroes. Real heroes were the men and women who protected our country. And they said, I marveled at World War II soldiers. I marveled at just these men who would give their lives, who would give everything that they had for the freedom of others, the sacrifice that they would make. Marveled at that type of um, just lifestyle, right? Well, here's the thing, right? When I was growing up, our country wasn't at war. So I didn't have soldiers. We were past World War II. We were past Vietnam. And I kind of grew up in what I thought in my adolescent mind was a pretty peaceful America. And that's where a lot of us grew up in this room. And so for a lot of us, our people that we marveled at kind of skewed a different way more towards athletics, right? So I had some people this week who kind of said um, the names of some Olympians, right? Kerry Strug. You guys remember Kerry Strug? No? Are you serious? This girl gave her ankle for America, right? Okay. This is the girl that did a vault and hurt her ankle but had to do it again for the American team to have a chance to win gold. And so she did her vault, stuck it perfectly, and then immediately went up on one foot because her ankle was just mauled. And was carried off, but the Olympians, the American team won the gold medal, right? Had another gymnast, Shannon Miller, who was tossed out as somebody who, um, in the toughest moments, the most pressure-packed moments, was able to perform perfectly to, again, ensure gold for the United States. And then I had this one. I had several ladies that kind of sent this in to me this week. You know, growing up, if you're a guy... Superheroes, we got lots of choices. We got Batman, we got Superman, we got Spider-Man. If you're a girl, who did you have growing up? Yeah, I got Wonder Woman like three times. Like, this was it for me. I marveled at her because she was able to do what all the boys were able to do. For me growing up, this was an easy answer. I had one guy that I marveled at, no, no questions asked, and this is him right here. That's my man. That is Michael Jordan. Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Okay, just, my parents did not know that when they named me, but i just like to thank the Lord to align that somehow. This is the greatest basketball player that I have ever seen. Okay, now, I did not grow up in time to watch Wilt play. I didn't see Wilt Chamberlain play. I didn't see some of the older guys play. So if you're older in the room and you got, you got beef with this, I get it. This is the best guy I've ever seen play. Some of these young folks... Throw out this guy named LeBron, and they need prayer because they're off. This is it. Like, I could watch this guy play all day. This is, this is just a couple things to show you how much I love Michael Jordan, okay? A couple years ago, my lovely wife did this for me for a gift. She took all of my old Michael Jordan t-shirts made them into a quilt, okay? That's not just one shirt. I had a Michael Jordan shirt for every day of the week, if so needed. And this is not all of them. Some of them did not make the cut, right? But literally, my mom and dad hated taking me shopping anywhere where there was sports stuff because they knew if there's a Michael Jordan shirt, I'm going to absolutely beg for it, right? Another thing that I had every day to start my day off, I would go into my room and I would check myself. 
to see how I was stacking up with MJ. Okay? Michael, he's 6'6". I thought I was going to get there. I did not. Once I stopped, this moved from prominence in my room to behind the closet door in my room because I no longer wanted to look at the fact that I was not going to be the same height as Michael Jordan, right? If any of you want to measure yourself against Michael, you can do that at the end of the service today. But I, I loved him. I marveled at everything he did, every, the way he played on the court, the things he was able to do, his competitiveness. Man, he was just, it was unreal. It was unreal. And this passage we're going to look at today, we see where Jesus stops and has this moment where he marvels at someone. And I'm going to tell you this, if Jesus stops and marvels at someone, I want to know what that person was doing. Right? Because whatever that man was doing, that's probably something I need to pay attention to. If it got Jesus' admiration in that moment. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 5 through 13 together this morning. Matthew chapter 8. If you don't have your Bible, it's going to be up on the screens. You can follow along with me. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Matthew 8. And we're going to read verses 5 through 13. And this is what it says. It says that when he, being Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, Jesus said, well, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, here we go. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west And recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Alright, so you get this story of a Roman centurion. And we're going to break this down here in just a second. Coming to Jesus... And basically begging Jesus to help him and help his servant. We're going to talk about why that is striking in just a second. But I, I, I want to take just a minute to clear up. This, this story is told in two different places in Scripture. It's told here in Matthew 8. I'm sorry, Matthew 5. Okay, No, sorry, Matthew 8. But it's also told in Luke 7. Okay, And when you look at those two stories, there are some differences... In those stories that sometimes people will jump onto and say, look at this. The Bible doesn't line up. There's discrepancies here. It doesn't agree here. And I want to make sure we understand that there's no discrepancy here. There are just some differences. Okay? Matthew was primarily writing his letters. Anybody know who Matthew was writing to? What audience? The Jewish, the Jews, the Jewish audience. Who was Luke writing to? Gentiles, right? We're writing to two different audiences, okay? Here's the second thing. Matthew, in his gospel, Matthew is a get-to-the-point type of guy. Matthew is, I'm going to just tell you what you need to know, 
Some of y'all like that type of person. Don't give me all the background story. Just tell me what I need to know. That's Matthew. Luke, on the other hand, much more detailed, much more focused in small details than Matthew was. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Because here's the, here's, the, here's the thing. Matthew's story, the centurion himself comes to Jesus. In the Luke account, the centurion sends two different groups of Jewish kind of intermediaries to deal with Jesus. And so some people have problems with that. Like, well, this one says the centurion win. This one says he didn't win. This isn't right. The Bible isn't, you know, it's contradicting itself. Da, da, da. What I want to tell you is, no, it doesn't. That's not what's happening here. Scholars have studied this and they've looked and tell you the truth. We don't know. We don't know if the centurion went himself or if he sent Jewish intermediaries. We don't know. We can debate that over and over again. But what I do know is this. The exchange between Jesus and the centurion in Matthew 8 is the exact same exchange as Jesus and the centurion in Luke chapter 7. The meat of it is the same. And if, these, if there were Jewish intermediaries who went, it's like an ambassador from the United States, right? If we send an ambassador to a foreign country, do they get to go and do whatever they want? No. If, if so, we need to sign up for that job. No. What does an ambassador do? They go and they represent the United States. They represent our policy, our beliefs, our thoughts. If, these, if there were Jewish intermediaries sent here, they were there representing the thoughts and the words of the centurion. So I just, this is kind of a side, but I don't want people getting tripped up here that the Bible is in conflict. The Bible's not in conflict here. Because the main point of this is the exchange between Jesus and the centurion. Whether it was the centurion in person or whether it was sent through intermediaries, doesn't matter. It's still the same exchange. Does that make sense? Okay? So... Now that you're bored to death, here we go. Here's the thing. Jesus has this encounter with this centurion, and it says there in verse 10 that he marveled at the faith of the centurion. That word marveled is the Greek word thamatso. Okay? Thamatso. And that Greek word, Jesus uses it twice in all of Scripture. Okay? He uses it right here. And then he also uses it over in Mark chapter 6 in a way that we none of us really want to be associated with. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in Nazareth, which was his hometown. And Jesus was in his hometown trying to teach and trying to um, bring them into the truth of who he was. And guess what? They weren't having it. Right? Y'all know sometimes home is the hardest place. Sometimes family or the most hard-headed parents are like, yep. In that passage in Mark, Jesus is trying to teach and is trying to perform miracles, and the people in Nazareth are not having anything to do with it. And at the end of that little short passage in Mark 6, it says that Jesus marveled at their disbelief. He's like, I, I just, I'm in, amazed that these people cannot see what's in front of them. But this time when Jesus uses it, it's in a positive light. He looks at the centurion and it says he marveled at his faith. That word, thalmatso, literally translates to wonder at or to marvel at, or it's this idea of admiring. So in translation, Jesus is looking at the centurion's faith and is admiring it. Doesn't that make you think that we might need to look at it to see what's there? 
the one person in Scripture that it says that Jesus admired his faith in this moment. I think there's really two things that we can see this morning from the centurion's faith that I want us to kind of be aware of. And here's the thing. These are going to sound like two of the most basic, churchy, Christian things ever. You're going to think, there's, this wasn't hard. This is an easy sermon. He just picked like two Christian mantras and put them together and that was it. But there are two Christian basic things that I think that we need to kind of look a little deeper at in regards to our lives. Okay, and here's the first one. I think when we saw the Roman centurion in this encounter with Jesus, I think we see that the Roman centurion was able to recognize the authority of God. A Roman centurion, was that at the top or the bottom of the Roman military structure? That's toward the top, right? So to be a Roman centurion, you had to have proved yourself as a very capable and respected soldier. You had to have carried out orders efficiently, quickly, in a timely manner. It would have been someone who was very obedient, someone who was very trustworthy. Centurions were, were not over a hundred people, as the name centurion kind of makes us think. Centurions generally were over about 70 to 80 soldiers who would be under him. And probably what was happening here was this centurion was the kind of the law of the, the law of the town of Capernaum. And he was there to make sure that everything flowed happy and nothing got out of whack so that they didn't draw the attention of Caesar and Rome as anything was going on. He was there to make sure the city was rocking and rolling the way it needed to be going. This centurion comes to Jesus. And the, the, the wordage there, if you translate it there in verse um, 6, or sorry, at the end of verse 5, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. That word appealing to him can be translated beseeched, which basically means begged. The church, I want you to think about it. When's the last time you remember seeing a military general beg anybody for anything? That don't happen. That doesn't happen. This is a Roman centurion military leader coming to Jesus, begging him for help. And that's striking in a couple of reasons. Number one, this is a Roman begging a Jew. Those don't go together. Jews hated the Romans because they lorded and ruled over them. Romans hated the Jews. They viewed them as dirty and kind of useless and kind of got tired of having to deal with them. The second thing is, is that the centurion was a Gentile. Jesus was a Jew. They don't intermingle. Jews hated Gentiles. Gentiles had nothing to do with Jews. But yet this centurion comes to Jesus and begs him for help. Why? Because he was able to identify that Jesus had authority. He didn't go to Caesar. He didn't go to a Roman council. He came to Jesus. And the crazy thing is Jesus, you know how Jesus responds to it? Jesus says, sure, where do you live? Let's go. Which that in and of itself was scandalous. Because at that time, Jewish people didn't go to the house of Gentiles. And then one other thing I want you to see right here, right? How does he address Jesus at the beginning of verse 6? 
He uses the word what? Lord. When is a Roman military advisor going up to a Jew, a Jewish rabbi and calling him Lord? This guy was able to see that Jesus had authority. Right? And that's, that's something I think in our churches, man, we're all on board. If I stand up here this morning and I say, hey church, God is the ultimate authority. That is worthy of a good hearty. Amen. We're all, amen. We're all good. But my question is, is that, when, when the rubber meets the road, is that really how we're living? That God and His Word are our authority? Anybody who knows me knows I'm a Tennessee fan. Right? We live in SEC country. Everybody's got their allegiances. I grew up literally about a five minute drive from Neyland Stadium. I come by it honestly. I grew up in the shadow of, of, of all nation. And so I'm a Tennessee fan. And you will have no doubt knowing that about me if you see me on the weekend. I will have a Tennessee shirt on, Tennessee shorts. I'll have a hat on. Um, I'll, I'll be wearing something big orange. Something would be drastically wrong if you saw me on the weekend and I was wearing a UK basketball shirt. If that's your team, God bless. No, no, not trying to start a SEC war this morning. But if I'm wearing that shirt, something is wrong. If you see me out and about on a weekend and I'm wearing an Alabama Crimson Tide hat, something has happened. Now, I could walk into Neyland Stadium this fall for a football game, and I could be singing Rocky Top at the top of my lungs, and I could be V-O-L-S, Go Vols Go. But if I walk into that stadium wearing a U.K. jacket and an Alabama hat, people are not just going to excuse it. I'm going to have some explaining to do. And I think that's us, church. There's a lot of us walking around saying, oh, God is our authority. God is my, I'm a follower of Jesus. God is my authority. You know, G-O-D, go, God, go. Well, we're wearing all the junk from the world. And how is anybody supposed to know the difference? Here's the thing, right? If this, if this is the ultimate authority, then this is the ultimate authority. If we talk about ultimate authority, how many spaces is that? There's only room for one. If we talk about ultimate authority, when I tell you that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time, that means he by himself. If we say the Bible is the ultimate authority, this is it. It's not what your grandparents taught you growing up. You might have been raised by great God-fearing people, but what they taught you is not the authority. God's word is the authority. What Fox News tells you is not the authority. God's word is the authority. It's not what your random rant somebody posts on Facebook that they attach a Bible verse to. That's not the authority. This is the authority. And I believe that a lot of us churches, we are, that's what we claim. That we believe this is our authority. Okay, well, here's the thing. And, I, and listen to me. I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to anybody this morning. When I told Lila I was going to preach on this a couple weeks ago, this, what we're talking about this morning, was not the direction I was going. And when I got into it, the Lord kind of just had a few moments with me and kind of smacked me around with the Holy Word a little bit and kind of changed my direction. And I've been convicted about this as much as anybody in here this morning, I promise you this. But if this is going to be our ultimate authority, this is going to change the way that you think. It is going to change the way that you form opinions. 
It is going to change the way that you deal with society and with culture. And here's the problem. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, anybody know that verse? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Lean not on your own understanding. Church, we've been leaning on our own understanding a lot. We've been trusting our own wisdom and what we can figure out a lot. There's a lot of issues that our country's dealing with right now that we need to get our stance in alignment with God's stance. Racism is eating up America right now. And in in the life of a Christian, in the life of somebody who believes God's word, there's no room for it. There's not. There's no room for prejudice. We're all created in the image of God. We're all called to love our brothers. The the issue of immigration, right? And I'm not trying to turn this into a political sermon this morning because I don't follow politics real well. And I don't have a whole lot of policy ready to go in place. So please hear me. This whole thing about immigration, and I don't know how that, how exactly that to best to be handled, but everybody's like, man, let's just close it all off. Man, what does God's word tell us about doing for the least of these? We got so many people that are terrified of Islam and what's going on, and I get it. I am, I, it hurts my heart every time we hear about another Christian brother or sister who's been martyred somewhere because of their faith in Jesus. But church, we've been told this was what was going to happen. God's word says you're going to suffer for my name. And what does God's word tell us about our enemies? Love them and pray for them. You see where I've been challenged? Is anybody feeling some weight on their toes yet? I'm kind of trying to tiptoe on them. These stances that seem really publicly right. If they're out of alignment with God's word, they're wrong. When we begin to see this as the ultimate authority, it begins to change how we think, how we act, how we form opinions. The centurion understood the authority. And here's the thing that's crazy about the centurion. How much of a body of work of Jesus did he have to work with? Not a lot, right? This is, this is happens in Matthew, right? Matthew chapter 8. What happens in Matthew 5 through 7? Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus' ministry is just kind of getting cranked up. It's not like Jesus has been on the, on the scene for two and a half years. This is a centurion with very little knowledge, very little of what Jesus has done so far, who immediately recognizes this guy has God's authority. And he probably didn't understand it fully, and he probably didn't know all the Old Testament law and Old Testament scriptures, but in that moment, he was able to look and say, this guy has authority. And so he came to him and said, I need help. Church, I think the first thing for me this morning and for all of us, we've got to get back to that place where we recognize God's authority in our lives. And quit leaning on our own wisdom and understanding. Because that was what has gotten us in this place that we're at now. Here's the second thing I think we see from the centurion's faith. And it's this. Is that the centurion was able to recognize the power of God. Right? He goes to the, the Jesus and he says, I need you to please come. My servant is paralyzed. I need you. Please help him. And Jesus says, all right, where do you live? Let's go. 
right? And then the centurion says, no, I'm not even worthy for you to be at my house. But he said, but if you will just speak it, then I know he'll be healed. I think myself included, again, I think a lot of times, guys, we have short-term memory when it comes to God's power. A lot of you guys always come up and say nice things to me after services on Sunday. The music was good or I like this, I like that. It's always pleasant. But you know what happens when somebody comes up and makes a negative comment? Guess which one I remember longer. Guess which one just kind of seems to stick with us longer. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Somebody can come up and give you ten compliments, but the first time they say something rude or hurtful, what do you hold on to? And I think that's what we do. God has done amazing things in the lives of most of us in this room. But we forget about those and we focus on that one thing that's wrong or that's troubling or that's causing us pain or that's not going right. And we get tripped up right there instead of seeing the power of God. This centurion didn't. He said, man, if you just speak it, I know it's going to be done. Something Lyle and I always joke about. We joke about how the fact that we are your ministerial staff, feel, a lot of you feel like you have the power to come and say whatever you want to to us. And the fact I've been told a couple of times, like, you need to go cut that animal off your face. Basically mean I need to shave. I basically, be, basically have been told in the nicest way possible, hey, you're like Christian fat. Yeah, like people will come up and just like think that they have the right to judge your weight or your appearance or anything like that. And so because I love you and I serve you and you guys pay my paycheck, I just, amen, thank you, right? But here's the thing, you you guys have the power to come and say that to me, but you don't have the authority to tell me whether I'm shaving my face or not. Now, if I go home and my wife says, I'd like for you to shave that off of your face. Then next Sunday, I will come in and I will look like pristine. It'll be, you know, baby's rear end over here. Because in my life, she has the authority in, in my life to make those type of decisions together. We have to understand the fact our God has authority and power. Authority and power. So many of us in today's climate, we live in this kind of state of Christian fear. We're afraid of what's going on in the Middle East. We're afraid of the racist issues. We're afraid of all these things. And I'm not saying we don't need to pay attention to them. We do. But it's like this this attitude of fear has taken over. And I love this, uh, this, the last verse of the uh, hymn, This Is My Father's World, says this, right? It says, this is my father's world. Let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. There's no reason for us to be living in this state of fear. We serve a God who has authority and power. You know, one of the areas I've been the most challenged with this is, is as I think about the relationships between Christians and Muslims. To be really honest with you, Josh Norman and I just got done reading a book um, a couple of weeks ago about a, a prominent Muslim man 
who came to know faith in Jesus and who's now doing work for the Lord. And it was absolutely just mesmerizing to read how that happened. But as I would challenge this week, God tells us, man, to love our enemies and love those who persecute us. And people tell me all the time, man, yeah, but those, those Muslims over there are killing Christians. I, I know they are because they don't know Jesus. I can't expect them to live like somebody who knows Jesus because they don't. So what's my challenge? My challenge is to find ways to share Jesus. To lift high the name of Jesus. Because even our brothers and sisters in the, in the Middle East who have very different belief systems than us, guess what? They are made in the image of God. That's hard to stomach, isn't it? A little bit. We can't do that on our own. But when we get our, our facts straight that our God has authority and power, he can help us do these things. Jesus marveled at these, at these two facets of the centurion's faith. The fact that he knew that Jesus had God's authority, which we know he did because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. And the centurion knew that Jesus was the only one who had the power to heal in that moment. And so Jesus turns around to all the people who've been following with him. And he says, I've been looking all over Israel for this type of faith and haven't found it. Because who, in essence, should have been most ready to receive Jesus? The Jewish nation, right? They've been waiting for a Messiah for years. And here is Jesus performing miracles and doing amazing things and teaching them. He knows the law. He's instructing them. And the Jewish people are like, nah, this isn't him. This isn't him. But yet this Roman centurion in the drop of a hat says, this guy has authority and power. This is who I need to seek. That scripture says that Jesus kind of wraps this passage up where he says, you know, that there's going to be many from the east and the west, from all across the world who are going to come and be a part of God's millennial reign. But there are going to be some in the kingdom who are cast out because they're not able to see who God really is. They're not able to see who Jesus really is. Church, our responsibility while we're here is to be ambassadors for Jesus. The way that we live our lives is to point others to Jesus. The things that we say are to point others to Jesus. The things that we support are to point people to Jesus. In essence, our whole lives are to be about Jesus. Because just as we sang at the end of that Lamb of God song, it was our death that he died. We've been ransomed and we've been rescued and we've been set free. And we've been set free so that we can honor and praise and glorify the name of God. But I think a lot of us individually and a lot of churches across our country are failing to do that because we have forgotten that God is our ultimate authority and that our God is ultimately powerful and if we would begin to remember those two things and pull our lives back in alignment with those two things i truly believe the churches could be the catalyst for change in our country but if we don't then we won't i talk about this to the students almost every wednesday night about getting your life back in alignment with god what happens when your car is out of alignment 
It pulls, right? If you take your hands off the wheel when your car is out of alignment, where are you going? You, you're going towards the ditch or oncoming traffic. Neither of those are good options. But if your car is in alignment and you take your hands off the wheels, and I don't suggest trying this on the interstate or anywhere, but you take your hand off the wheel, what happens to your car? Go straight. When our lives are in alignment with God, we can take our hands off the wheel. And he will keep us going straight. When our lives are out of alignment with God and we take our hands off the wheel, we are headed for a ditch. And I'd say a lot of us would say America's been in the ditch for a while. All of this study this week kind of just reminded me of one thing. This is the last thing we got for you this morning is this. And that's every single one of us in this room. We are completely reliant on God's faithfulness, his grace, and his mercy. Every single one of us, whether you've been a Christian for two weeks or whether you've been a believer for 70 years, every single one of us in here is reliant completely on God's faithfulness and his grace and his mercy. We need it fresh and new every single day. And I truly believe that we can't fully experience that if we're living our lives without this truly being the authority for us. Because I can promise you, because I've already seen it in my life in the last couple of weeks, when you begin to reclaim this as the ultimate authority in your life, it will change the way you think about some things. It will change your opinions on some things. It will change the way you react to some things. And it's not always comfortable, and it's not always easy. But church, here's the question. Would you rather be comfortable and easy, or would you rather be in alignment with God? Would you rather have a faith that Jesus marvels at, that says, "Mm, that's got it going on? Or would you rather continue to trust your own understanding?